0: You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation and law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. Welcome to another
1: edition of the Wiley Connected podcast. Today, we are delighted to have with us Tom Johnson, his General Counsel at the Federal Communications Commission. We've been doing some of these Wiley Connected podcasts with a variety of private sector, and government leaders in the technology space talking about public policy and legal issues as they affect the tech sector. So we're delighted to have Tom join us. He, as I said, is general counsel at the FCC. Prior to that, he served as the deputy solicitor general in West Virginia. He was in private practice at Gibson Dunn in D.C. and is a graduate of Harvard Law School. So welcome, Tom.
2: Thanks, Megan, and thanks, Josh. I'm very happy to be here.
1: Josh Turner, my partner, Josh, why don't you give a brief bio? Sure.
2: I'm a partner in the firm's telecommunications,
3: media, and technology practice. Uh, I have been doing that for a little over 20 years now, which is an incredible thing to say, um, <laughs> but I do a lot of work in front of, the, uh, in front of the FCC. I've sat across the table from Tom a number of occasions and also been in court with him uh, and really have enjoyed the experience. And Tom, thank you very much for joining us today. Absolutely.
1: I'm Megan Brown, and I'm a partner in our TMT practice, um, and with the many other folks here at Wiley practice extensively before the FCC, and have had some a variety of commissioners and others on recently. So we wanted to reach out to Tom to talk about the role as general counsel in a, a seat you've been in for a while now. And I guess, you know, Tom, as Josh and I were prepping for this, we were thinking about all the many things we would want to ask you. In our experience, there are really two major roles that the general counsel at the FCC has. First is kind of advising the agency on the legality of possible actions they're going to take in proceedings and otherwise, and secondly, defending the agency in court, which is a pretty substantial chunk of your time. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference in those two roles and maybe which part of the job you like better?
2: Well, sure. Well, um, I think you you described those two roles uh, really well. And, you know, what's fascinated me about the job is the way in which those uh, two roles are actually pretty interconnected. One of my predecessors, Chris Wright, likes to say that the best written brief to defend an order in in court is a well-written rule. And it's very true. So basically, on the administrative law side of the House, we are responsible for reviewing each of the orders that the commission votes on. To make sure that they are legally supported, that they are responding to all of the comments in the record, that we're anticipating the kinds of arguments that a party who might challenge our rule will be making in court. And so, if you do that job well, I've got a great deputy, Mike Carlson, and a great team over there who are just extraordinary in in terms of fly specking these orders, then it makes your job in court a lot easier. You know, we often find that. If um, a, a couple of times in which we've we've gotten remanded over the course of the past three years, it's it's been something like a notice issue, or so, or something that is is a little bit harder to fix on the on the litigation side, and so it just shows you the uh, the importance of uh, of having a well written order in place. And, uh, you know, I come from an appellate and litigation background. That's what I did in private practice. That's what I did at the state level for a year arguing appeals. And so I really do enjoy that. I really enjoyed the opportunity to defend the commission restoring internet freedom order in court last year, early last year. And so I I definitely have a, a, a real passion for writing a clear brief being able to argue and defend those d- defend those positions in court so it's just really been a, a great honor to have the the commission as my client because there's no lack of interesting legal issues cutting and um you know thorny questions to sort through
3: yeah i mean ever more recently right uh, it seems like every day the commission is in the news on some new high profile issue but just going back to to a point that you made there from a policy standpoint, how quickly do you get involved as the sort of voice of what is and is not possible uh, under the Administrative Procedure Act? Did they bring you in very early and say, look, here's the objective that we we'll want to accomplish, what's the best way of getting there? Or is that a conversation that, that happens a little bit later in the process?
1: Yeah,
2: I think it depends on the item, but certainly for uh, high-profile items or items where a lot turns on our statutory authority and where the ultimate policy cut will turn at least in part on what authority we have and how we're evaluating our litigation risk. I tend to get involved in those you know, fairly early on. There might be a case in which we sit down with the chairman's office or members of the bureau, a particular commissioner who has ownership of a particular policy portfolio and present options you know present essentially an options memo that says here's a b and c maybe you know a is very aggressive but gets you more policy b less so and 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 on and down and i do think that that helps you know when we go through that iterative process it really helps to create a uh, a better and and more defensible Product down the road, so you have some of that kind of initial big picture thinking up front, and then there are opportunities once the drafting gets started to to conduct additional review.
1: Following up on that, and maybe jumping ahead a little bit, Josh, in that process of assessing litigation risk and thinking about how to position some of the ultimate policy decisions with a sound legal footing how much does the agency end up coordinating with the Department of Justice at various stages, right? You guys work together in certain respects. The FCC does have independent litigating authority to a point. So can you maybe shed a light on how that relationship works? Because I see a lot of interaction with you guys.
2: Sure. Well, we work uh, very closely with uh, attorneys of the Department of Justice, and we've got a great working relationship with the different components there. If they are more involved on the litigation side. So for most briefs that we file, we work uh, with the antitrust division over there. Uh, they have an opportunity to review those briefs and uh, they've signed on, I think, to all of the briefs that, uh, you know, we filed during my tenure. And it provides them an opportunity to look at those briefs um, with an eye towards some of the institutional and government wide interests that they are concerned about over there. And We also occasionally, depending upon the subject matter, are working either with the civil division, uh, the federal programs branch, um, you know, with respect to some of our litigation work, like on the fraud side or with respect to False Claims Act actions, those types of things that end up in the district court. Those are actually cases in which the DOJ typically takes the lead, and we're dealing either with US attorneys' offices or we're dealing with line attorneys in the civil division. And, you know, we also work with the Solicitor General's Office. So we had a, a great opportunity about a month or two ago to file a petition for certiorari with them in a case involving our longstanding litigation in the Third Circuit. So we've got that case that's currently pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. And so uh, it's just great to have that kind of exposure. I mean, you, you get to talk to a lot of different attorneys throughout the federal government they really do a lot of good work to help, you know, improve the ultimate product and put us in the best position to prevail in court.
1: And I will say good luck on that media case because our partners have been slogging away at that for, what is it, 19 years, 18 years? <laughs> folks have been trying to to effectuate that statutory provision, so uh, we're pulling for you on that one, I think it's fair to say.
2: Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And, um, you know, we are, we are hopeful. We think we've, we've presented some strong arguments to the court and we'll, we'll see how it goes.
3: Well, and, and Tom, you actually mentioned that uh, DOJ has signed on to all of your briefs during your tenure. Uh, Megan and I were actually involved in a case uh, involving one of your predecessors where DOJ did not sign on to the FCC's brief. And uh, all of us sort of took note of, that, note of that at the time during the appeal. We were on the other side. What does that mean to you if DOJ declines to get involved? Is that a is that a serious concern of yours, or is that something you just haven't crossed that bridge, so you sort of don't know? What this
2: well, I think you know it. It's always you know preferable to have the Department of Justice on board. I mean, I think it signifies that um, you know they've reviewed and signed off on 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 the work, and again, they're sort of looking at this. More from a government-wide perspective as opposed to an agency-specific perspective, but there are you know there are a host of reasons as to why they might not sign on to something in a particular case. For example, with respect to uh, cases at the stay stage, they typically do not sign on to that in part because of the kind expedited review process that is required uh, with respect to stay briefing. So it's not always an indication that they that they disagree with the merits of the brief. But, you know, we always, you know, look to have them on board where we can.
3: One of the other things that the FCC tends to do is get involved um, at the amicus stage and sometimes provide the views of the agency on cases that involve the Communications Act. How do you decide to make that kind of intervention uh, to get involved and to provide those views? Is that something, are you tracking? You have a sort of an active tracker of cases that involve the Communications Act. Do people come to you and and ask for your help? How's, How's that decision made?
2: I think it's a variety of factors. It depends upon the case. I mean, we we do actively look at cases involving commission equities that are working their way through the federal courts, but sometimes it's by invitation of court. So, for example, we filed a statement of interest in a class action case in, involving Apple devices. The claim was that uh, Apple's uh, iPhones were unsafe because they supposedly exceeded federal radio frequency emissions guidelines. You know, we conducted our independent testing of those phones and found that they did comply with federal guidelines and were safe for consumer use. That was brought to the attention of the court in that case, and the judge wanted our participation to uh, further sort of elucidate those issues. And so that was one where we were invited by the court to participate. And that led actually to our participation in a related case pending in the same district court involving a a cell phone ordinance adopted by the city of Berkeley, forcing retailers to uh, disclose at the point of sale that cell phones might be unsafe if if pressed against the body. And so because there were similar equities there, same court, we had an interest in the uniformity of law. We also participated in that case. So that's just one example of how it could happen. I mean, there are other times where uh, it's an important policy priority of the agency. And so we reach out and and try to participate in a particular case. The one thing we don't like to do though is to get out ahead of the commission. We like to say that, you know, we don't like making law by amicus brief. And of course, that's a practice that the Supreme Court has discouraged for agencies to attempt to adopt policies uh, in a litigation posture. And so I think that's a question, uh, you know, particularly for practitioners who might be listening to this, you know, we we always ask that when people come in and urge amicus participation is, what has the commission previously said on this topic? How far out are we getting over our skis if we lob in a brief because we don't like getting ahead of the commissioners?
1: I'd like to follow up on one thing you, you intimated there about sort of not getting ahead of the commissioners and not making law by amicus brief, that reminded me of the several executive orders that have popped out recently from this administration on uh, guidance and uh, regulatory reform. Those don't directly apply to the FCC as an independent agency, but have you been sort of tracking those and do they affect your or the commission's approach to some of the sort of admin law and policy questions that you're seeing?
2: Yeah, well, I think that, you know, this administration under Chairman Pai has been very attentive to these rule of law concerns. And so I'd say as a general matter, you know, we do most of our policymaking through rulemaking, which is how it ought to work through the notice and comment provisions of of the APA. Um, And as you guys also know, I mean, Chairman Pai has actually uh, gone one step beyond that in terms of releasing the draft text of, of rules, uh, what's called this transparency initiative, three weeks before the uh, the commission holds a vote on a particular item. And so that is, uh, even when we do things like interpret the Communications Act through through a mechanism we call the declaratory ruling, I mean, we're not ones, we really are not going out there producing a bunch of staff-level guidance memoranda that interpret key phrases of the act, those, those declaratory rulings are typically voted upon uh, by the entire commission. And so I do think there's a, a real commitment here, unlike in some other agencies that make a lot of use of those type of informal guidance documents. There's a real commitment here when there's a policy change to do it by commission-level vote. One of the things that I think is interesting about Chairman Pai's administration
3: I mean, obviously, Chairman Pai has a background in telecom law, and he's a lawyer's lawyer when it comes to thinking about these issues. But he's also very upfront and very outspoken in public, and he's devoted a fair amount of time to the idea that he's an ambassador of these telecom issues to the public, and to really helping the public understand what they are on Twitter and elsewhere. I think you also have a pretty strong Twitter game. How do you decide how public-facing to be, and how do you balance the role about making those statements to the public so that the public knows what's going on? with the important point that you just made about not getting out ahead of the commission and not getting too far over your skis.
2: I'd like to thank you for charitably describing my Twitter game as strong. Um, But one thing that really attracted me to the commission, even before I accepted the the job, was the fact that uh, Chairman Pai, to me, really seemed to be a great example of someone who both really cared about policy and had a lot of policy expertise as well as legal expertise, but also had a really good way of messaging that, getting it out to the public, particularly on issues that, you know, tend to be pretty controversial, like the net neutrality debate, for example. And so I really admired that and sort of wanted to learn that skill set from him. And he's also got a great team, media team, that helps him on that side of the house. And so I think that over time, now that I've been in this position for about three years, I'm more confident in knowing sort of what the policy priorities of the commission are, you know what sorts of messages we ought to be pushing externally, but the same sorts of rules still apply i mean i I typically don't weigh in with my opinion on something that's currently pending before the commission or that we expect will be pending. As a Hatch Act employee, there are certain restrictions on political involvement and things like that. So there are some parameters that we need to keep in mind. But I think by and large, we do a pretty good job of of getting our message out there through through Twitter and other means.
1: So you had just mentioned sort of one of the reasons you took the job was because of, you know, Chairman Pai's approach and vision. Uh, You came to this job from being in the Solicitor General's office in West Virginia and are the beneficiary of the the change, the dramatic change in how SG's offices in states around the country have operated over the last, say, 15 years or so. How would you say this job, which is also an appellate job, how is it helping you in this role?
2: Well, one thing I have liked both about the experiences working in West Virginia, as well as for the federal government, is just the element of public service. I think in both of those positions, uh, there were great teams, they were kind of cause-oriented, public service-oriented teams. And so it really has been motivating to me to kind of, you know, get up every day and get to work on issues that, you know, if we get the answer right, it's really going to benefit the American people, have a positive effect uh, on the economy and jobs and, um, you know, in the current position, sort of the development of 5G. It's just really exciting, you know, stuff to work on. I'd say that a huge difference, of course, is just the, the the nature of working for state government as opposed to working for the federal government. Obviously, different institutional interests at stake. A lot of the arguments I was making on the state side, uh, where I worked under the prior administration, was suing the federal government, and that was a lot of my bread and butter in private practice as well. So I had to put on sort of a different hat now working uh, for the FCC and. Uh, being on the other side of the V in a lot of these cases, defending the prerogatives of the federal government. But I think that that experience helped me a lot in my present role because it gave me a really good sense of the types of arguments that I could expect to see from the other side. And my deputy, Ashley Boizel, who actually was also an attorney uh, with me in private practice, comes from that same background. So we both had that experience uh, suing the federal government and. And uh, now we're sort of uh, using the, the the bag of tricks that had been used against us at the time
1: fairly robust bag of tricks, I will say uh, at the federal government, so you do have the the benefit of the supremacy clause, and I was curious if the switch from state level litigation to the federal level I mean we find ourselves on both sides of the fCC depending on what the issue is. Um, but has it changed your thoughts or your approach to issues like preemption, the doctrines around preemption and the role? Of the federal government uh, and the FCC vis-a-vis the states?
2: Well, I think what I've found working for the FCC and looking at the nature of the Communications Act is that we're really in uh, an area in, in my current position in which Congress did anticipate a fairly robust uh, role for the federal government. We're dealing with interstate communication. So as a matter of Commerce Clause authority as a matter of statutory authority under the Communications Act, it's clear that Congress anticipated a lot of room for federal solutions when you're talking about interstate networks like telephone networks, like broadband networks, particularly when you're talking about 5G. These networks are inherently interstate. And so uh, those are the sorts of arguments that we've brought to bear with respect to preemption at the FCC is that, look, uh, it's not that we're against Federalism—it's that you're you're talking about the nature of what's being regulated here is inherently an interstate, and so that's ultimately the compromise that was that was set forth in the Constitution was that where you have issues that transcend state boundaries, those are matters for the federal government, and the Communications Act itself recognizes that to the extent that there are intrastate services, to the extent that there are interstate networks, and there are roles to be played by local utility commissions and the like. And so so it's just a matter of dividing up those responsibilities. And luckily, I wasn't really adverse to the FCC much when I was out in West Virginia.
1: The
3: FCC, I think, generally has been the beneficiary of some deference from the courts, maybe more so than other agencies because of the inherently interstate nature of some of the conduct that it regulates. But more and more, we've heard in the news talk of Chevron and talk of Brand X potentially uh, being on the chopping block, and and maybe there's going to be a reexamination of how much deference is owed to an agency when it makes pronouncements. Does that inform your thinking at all as you sort of think about what the agency should and shouldn't be doing? I mean, knowing that the law can change at any time, but, but also thinking about this might be a fundamental sort of sea change in the way in which the administrative state is perceived by the courts. Are there extra steps that you take or extra analysis that you give in order to, to try and anticipate that possibility?
2: Apart from the Supreme Court, which is its own animal, I think that for the most part, when we are practicing before the courts of appeals, we benefit from that case law that that you were talking about, in which we do get a lot of deference, particularly on the technical issues that are within our expertise. Uh, You know, as you know, there was an opportunity for the court to cut back on so-called our deference uh, within the past couple of years the theory that agencies should get deference with respect to interpretations of their own rules and the court did not overturn our it 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 modified the doctrine in certain ways and so there is this this uh, constant um kind of push and expectation i think among some conservative lawyers and judges that these doctrines will be you know significantly pared back obviously we have not seen that yet and I think that the outcome in a particular case has a, has a lot to do with, you know, particularly what parts of the Communications Act you're talking about. I mean, there are parts that are fairly prescriptive, and then we might get into the argument as to what Congress meant and how clearly it spoke. There are other times, as you know, where we have a fair amount of deference because we are implementing kind of a broader public interest standard, for example, and there. I think the kinds of challenges we get are much more focused on the record, how reasonable was our decision-making process, whether we considered all alternatives and applicable comments. So so it's kind of hard to generalize from discussions about Chevron generally as to how well we might do in a particular case.
1: Apart from some of the big cases that get, you know, on the John Oliver show and other sort of big focus from the media, are there sort of sleeper Cases or issues that you think people should be paying attention to, like what are the what are the pieces of litigation the FCC has now that you're actively involved in that you're watching that you think are are important, even if they might not be the big sexy uh, headline grabber
2: Well, I think all our cases are are big and sexy, but um, <laughs> I guess i'll say you know one thing that. I'm not sure that someone outside of our field would really be completely clued into is all of the different debates surrounding spectrum management and surrounding spectrum allocation. You know, in order to make 5G work, we really need to make sort of a range of uh, spectrum in different frequency bands, what's often referred to as mid band, low band, high band spectrum available for different parts of what will ultimately become uh, 5G networks. And so the problem often is that is as you look as you look around, you'll see that particular bands have incumbents that were put there under different thinking, different administration, different generation of technology in which people thought that some particular application would pan out, and then it turns out it doesn't. So, for example, we have a proceeding that is currently in the courts involving the so-called C-band, in which the incumbents there are satellite operators that deliver cable and radio programming uh, to consumers. And... That spectrum, it turns out, is also very valuable for upcoming 5G applications, very valuable to the mobile wireless providers. And so we came up with a process to reallocate part of that spectrum from the satellite injury to mobile wireless. There are a lot of different moving pieces in there. And so that is one case that is currently in litigation. And briefing is ongoing and could possibly get argued later this year. Uh, we did win uh, a major victory in that case last week where the court denied an attempt by certain small satellite operators to uh, to stay that litigation. And so that's just one example, and there are others, of uh, a, a Spectrum case, a case that falls under our so-called Title III authority, um, which is a perfect example of what I was mentioning to Josh earlier, where... You know, the courts, including the DC Circuit, have said this is a highly technical issue in which, this, in which the commission has lots of discretion as to, as to how to make these allocation decisions. But that's one that, that is um, coming up and, and will be briefed and uh, is going to be a, a really important case for the future of 5G in the United States. Well,
3: and, and you talk about. Title III authority, where the FCC perhaps has the broadest uh, range of powers uh, of anywhere in its uh, sort of statutory toolbox. But even there, the, the agency's power isn't entirely unconstrained. You have to work with uh, other agencies in the federal government. You mentioned incumbents. There's a, another proceeding I know that's going on that has some concern from the Department of Defense that has been raised about, you know, the new rules that are going to take effect. And then you have international coordination that needs to be done as well because spectrum doesn't end at uh, national borders. So talk a little bit about how you, do you get involved in those kinds of conversations with other agencies or, or even with ambassadors that are going overseas to the world radio conference and others, other such bodies to talk about how best to get that done?
2: So I'm not as lucky as some of our, uh experts and leadership over at the International Bureau who've gotten to go to some of those those wonderful um, international trips, but I do, um, and so they they handle a lot of that, I guess what I'll call sort of the, the diplomacy side of things and you know, interactions with other countries as well as some of the really exciting stuff we're doing with re- with respect to, you know, space-related and satellite-related issues. But we, um, you know, I definitely do get involved in terms of reviewing things in the record in proceedings, uh, sort of like the Legato proceeding that you mentioned, and other proceeding proceedings that involve some federal use of spectrum, in which, you know, we we will get input from the executive branch, sometimes different components within the executive branch. In theory, NTIA, which is a component of the Department of Commerce speaks for the executive branch and will submit comments in our records on what the other executive branch agencies think about a particular rulemaking. Things sometimes get interesting when different parts of the executive branch uh, don't agree on a particular policy outcome, which is the case in Legato, for example. But ultimately, with respect to at least those bands of spectrum where we have jurisdiction under, under the Communications Act, it's our job to Look at the record, look at all of the different stakeholders take into concern their you know any con- potential concerns about interference and uh, ultimately you know reach a policy outcome and as the chairman has sort of said, you know just because there's disagreement on a particular issue doesn't mean that uh, we can just sit on our hands because just the the stakes in terms of uh, our ability to win the race to five g are just are just much too high. And so, uh you know we've got a lot of expert engineers, expert economists, and no lack of attorneys who can look through the records, or sort of sift through the various different issues and and end up producing a good result
1: you know um Tom, that was a super helpful overview of how the different players all interact with the f c c One of the um bureaus you mentioned was the international bureau and As the general counsel, presumably you have some visibility into the actions that are taken by the bureaus on delegated authority. There's a lot of interesting, meaty legal questions that arise, for example, around Team Telecom and the FCC's review of transactions, or for example, um, the Enforcement Bureau and some of the recent things they've been putting out about their approach to requests for confidential treatment of information submitted. Can you shed any light on what role the general counsel's office might play in either working with them to hammer out some of those issues, maybe dislodge some things that have been sitting for a while, or, or help them think through the legal issues that are super interesting and quite complicated down at the uh, bureau level?
2: Yeah, I mean, you you mentioned a lot of different things. I mean, and we really have a role in everything you kind of ticked off there. I mean, questions of delegated authority, meaning Whether the full commission or a particular bureau has authority to issue a particular decision, we advise on that all the time. Questions of confidentiality, questions that arise during the course of merger review, where we have a role to play in assuring that the public interest under the Communications Act is furthered whenever there's a transfer of licenses in connection with a particular merger acquisition. We have within the Office of General Counsel a transactions and fraud team that advises on those confidentiality issues, advises on those transaction-related legal issues. And uh, then uh, we also work very closely with the Enforcement Bureau, as you mentioned, oftentimes starting even at at the onset or in the midst of a pending investigation to think through do we have sufficient information to issue a, a a notice of apparent liability, essentially the equivalent of what might be a civil complaint or an indictment in criminal court or something? But sort of starts the enforcement process at the agency level, and then are the proposed penalties within the range of prior cases? You know, will will we potentially face some sort of argument about excessive penalties or the like? if this ends up going to court. So we're involved in a lot of those types of bureau level decisions. You know, we, we, we say that, you know, the commission is our client, but in another way, it's also very true that the, that the various bureaus are our client. And oftentimes for a lot of the policy decisions that are made, they do act on behalf of the commission. And so we, we try to be as available to them as possible to answer questions.
3: Well, it's hard to believe since um, I think we've been stuck inside for half of it, but we're coming up on the midpoint of the year, or maybe we've just passed the midpoint of the year. And um, so I wanted to ask you sort of what you see as the big FCC priorities for the second half of 2020. I mean, I know, obviously, there's going to be an election towards the end of this year, and that's going to cause some disruption. But until that time, um, what do you think the commission is going to get done? And what do you think uh, it's going to be focused on?
2: Well, I think the commission is going to continue uh, to try to execute on the chairman's 5G fast plan. You know, we we I think we still have a you know we have a number of open uh, rulemakings that I think will be resolved by you know the end of the year. I mean, the the chairman has been focused on uh, spectrum allocation for 5G, which we've already talked about. Sort of regulatory reform, the sort of of which, for example, the net neutrality repeal was a was a big item. And also closing the digital divide, i mean we 've got a lot of work right now you know, with respect to our rural digital opportunity fund to to help get more money to areas uh, that are behind in building out broadband. you know we took on a lot of additional responsibilities during the pandemic as as you mentioned from Congress in uh, allocating funds to those areas that need additional money in order to stay connected during this, this difficult time. So, uh, I feel like every every day or every week there's new success stories from people who have received money under that program and have been able to uh, stay connected or, or complete a project that otherwise they wouldn't be able. So, I think all all of that good work, uh, you know, will continue. You know, with respect to my office. Certainly, you know, looking to see what happens with uh, the Prometheus uh, cert petition. Uh, looking to see in a few days, we'll know whether the petitioners in the Mozilla case, or the restoring internet freedom case, decide to petition for certiorari or not. So that might be something that we need to respond to. Uh, we've got the CBAN litigation, which I mentioned. And we've also got litigation against uh, Huawei in the, in the Fifth Circuit. Uh, we've got an initial round of that that we're waiting the reply brief. They challenged our initial rules that essentially excluded any company that poses a national security threat, a threat to the network or supply chain integrity from our universal services programs, our federal subsidy programs. And so they challenged that as an initial matter. And just today, we released bureau-level items that finally designated Huawei and ZTE as falling under that rule. So I, I suspect we'll probably see further litigation on those. So that that's another big part of the year. So while 2020, while the clock is ticking, I, I certainly don't feel that we lack for any work during the latter half of this year.
3: No, and I've been, uh, and I know everyone in the, in the industry has been super impressed with the pace that uh, you all have managed to keep up working from home. It's been a real tribute, I think, to the communications policies that the commission has pursued over the past uh, 20 or so years that we've all been able to work so home, from home so seamlessly. But the agency especially uh, and the staff of the agency deserve real plaudits for being able to keep up the, the, the sort of relentless pace of work that they've been able to keep up. It's good for us in private practice, too. So uh, we very much appreciate it.
2: I'm very grateful to my team, and have also been sort of very impressed. And I think up and down, we've just been very impressed with how everyone has adapted to the uh, new normal here, and have have been able to work remotely from home. We're continuing to deliver results for the American people, continuing to execute on our policy priorities, and I think that that has been one small silver lining in the midst of what I know is a lot of disruption and, and pain for a lot of people. So even though it's been a lot of work, I think it's been a really exciting time to be a, a part of, the, of what we're doing at the FCC. Thank you to Tom Johnson for joining us today on Wiley Connected,
3: our podcast where we discuss issues facing the telecom and technology industries with important players at the center of those policy debates.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Wiley Connected podcast brought to you by the attorneys at Wiley. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to wileyconnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create, and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.